Hello and welcome to the Nakatobi Breakroom. I'm your host, Christian Seal, joined as always by Xander Massey. Hello. And Blake Bauman. Hello. We are three working stiffs in the film industry who love movies. I work in visual effects, Xander has a background in film finance and distribution, and Blake works in feature animation. Here we talk about the art, business, and culture of cinema. So today joining us, we have the amazing, the one and only, Lincoln Severe. Hey everybody, great to be here. Also, a uh, happy Father's Day to any fathers. Um, to you, I guess. you, right, Christian? Yeah. <laughs> I like how you wished uh, happy Father's Day to three people who don't have kids. It's kind of like being like, huh, and now is it anybody's birthday today? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> <what> it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Got to represent the dads. We usually talk about the, the bigger, more current movie first, but I don't know that there really is one. I guess election. Should we talk about election first? Sure. I yeah, did watch sure. that one first, so yeah. So did I. I did the opposite. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Going against the grain. because I got war games from the library, <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't even realize that election was on streaming. I feel so dumb. Wait, Christian, did you just go and get like a physical copy from the library? Yeah. This movie was made in 1999, and your. Um, technological prowess seems to have stopped about there. Like you're going to the library to check out a, a DVD. <laughs> like, I'm not really sure how I would stream this thing. <laughs> this movie uh, is way more nuanced than I remember. I saw it when it first came out and I remember it being a fun, dark comedy, but there's, there's a lot going on here. So much unreliable narrator. I love how the narration switches perspective. That's a quality. I didn't remember the narration at all, but that's a, that's a really nice quality. This movie, each of the main characters has an inner monologue. It exposes their total unawareness of flaws that are glaringly obvious to everybody in the audience. Broderick talks about how much he loves being a teacher and is also totally oblivious to the reality that he's living in denial. He also says that he admires Tracy. And I think, I think there's a part of him that is fascinated by her, but he also clearly can't stand her. He totally resents her for the affair that she had with his colleague. Right. And which is obviously misguided because he's blaming, you know, the college or the high school student. The whole teacher student affair, that was just like a little too far because all of the main characters transgress in a certain way, but nobody nearly as serious as having a sexual relationship with a minor. Yeah, I wrote the same thing. And I and I was wondering if it like didn't age well or if this was just always that disgusting. I, I'm with you. And for me, there's such a beautiful, like perfect story being told about a teacher whose maybe dreams haven't come true to the point where, where you know, they've settled into this, the, into the, the accumulation of their failures, contrasted with a girl who the future's wide open and, and every door is open for her. She hasn't started closing doors through a lifetime of decisions. And I liked that. And her character as a sexual person who's sleeping with a teacher, it just felt like a weird fit. It kind of seemed like she should almost be prudish. Like that's not where her head is. She cares more about the right. student body and the chess club than about getting it on. Yeah. So, so for me, it, it, it felt awkward. I didn't think it needed to be there. Yeah. And the character is largely asexual and, in the beginning, she says, you may think that I'm doing this because I didn't have a father figure or whatever. And it, it seems to be very much that, that she's more just looking for a male role model and that that mm -hmm. sexual relationship is the only way that that's the only thing available to her was my read on it. 
Um, and also another great example of how all of the inner monologues are just either in denial or just complete naivete. I also felt like the sexual relationship with Matthew Broderick's friend, you didn't need that background in order for them to already just be like enemies. It was an added layer, but it's felt a little unnecessary. I 100% agree, but I guess to try to play devil's advocate, I wonder, it almost could feel justified for him to hate her because she is so tightly wound and stuck up. But when you blame her as what like was really the victim of assault, now he there's no justification whatsoever for his character. Well, did you find him likable before that? Because I thought he was no. pretty bad. <laughs> I think that's like an Alexander Payne trait to make these like completely oh, yeah. just miserable characters. Yeah, he doesn't let anybody be the good guy. I didn't like him, but I also didn't hate him. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have had some previous experiences with people who are exactly like Reese Witherspoon's character, especially in high school, but... I assume I, everybody has. I hate yeah. her. Like, yeah. I think that his <laughs> reasoning is 100% justified. Totally, totally. Yeah. And the worst part is, is because of their determination and, and her un, uncompromising nature, she just might get what she wants. And screw her for that. Exactly. And I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) When I was in college, I wanted to be, my goal was I'm going to be the the world's greatest director and I'll probably write my own movies and I'll probably produce them all. And worst case scenario, absolutely worst case scenario, I'll become like a Joel Schumacher. You'll put nipples on the bat suit. I put nipples (laughs) on the bat suit. If Hollywood really doesn't go my way. (laughs) Reflecting back on this, I realized that I had a little bit of a superiority complex because I'm going places and I come out to LA and just get batted in the head with a with reality. And I inch my way up to a respectable part of the machine, a cog in the machine. That's I work for a studio. I'm like an, on the studio side, budgets and schedules, shit like that. 20-year-old me would be so disappointed. You know, grown man oh, yeah. me is like, yeah, this, this is a good job. <laughs> anyway, sometimes um, my, my, the, the students from my, my college, Montana State University, will come out and visit and I'll be at a, an event and I'm talking to them. And sometimes I sense that feeling of superiority they have towards me because they've got dreams that are like way above where I've landed. And they'll talk to me mm-hmm. politely, but I can tell in their heads, they're like, oh yeah, this guy's just one of those cogs in the machine. And I've learned to be okay yeah. with that. But early on, I was like, fuck you, kid. You haven't done anything. <laughs> amen, <laughs> amen. <laughs> oh man, college film students are the absolute worst. And I hate, I hate hating them because I'm like, I absolutely was that. And I thought it was so great. (laughs) I mean, I think we all were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. And it's not a bad place to be at that age because, because you want to have big dreams. You know what I mean? This is a bit of a tangent, but I, I had this, um, I, I work on this movie NFT project and I had somebody from USC reach out to me recently asking if they could work on it in some way. And they were like, uh, and I think I have a lot to add to this project because I go to the best film school in the world, which is Dude. USC. And being a student who goes to the best film school in the world will be the greatest filmmakers of the next generation. <laughs> what like, a Tracy shut Flick. Up. Well, yeah, oh you God. got an email from Tracy Flick. <laughs> Dude. I remember seeing this movie when it came out and I was high school age-ish. I remember just absolutely hating her. Couldn't stand her because, you know, you know people like that and they're really obnoxious and have a grating personality. But I've watched this again and I kind of felt sorry for her because she tries really hard and everybody hates her and nobody cares. High school is such a horrible environment (laughs) and it's such a horrible environment for somebody who's really motivated. 
Totally. I felt a lot of compassion for Tracy Flake. There's, there's a great moment of contrast where the, the brilliant performance by Chris Klein, uh, he's so good in this movie, but he's standing on his truck and he's talking to these cool, good looking, popular kids. And it's so easy and effortless. And it cuts to her on the back of the bus and she's got all Hunched like over. The, she's got so many disadvantages. She doesn't have friends. She doesn't have money, but she has drive. And I do love that she goes to Georgetown, and we get to see that like she thinks she's going to be around. Finally, be around other people like her, and it's like no, this is not. That's not the way people are. Then she even then, gets worse. She becomes more conservative with like the curlers yeah. and the, the yeah. nightgown. Um, going back to the ending, so the movie begins and ends with two sequences where the four main characters talk about their lives through an inner monologue. And one thing I love about this movie is that the characters don't arc at all. It's almost like an anti-arc. Mm-hmm. Like, none of them learn anything. It's almost like history is doomed to repeat itself. Like, if we got, like, a sequel, it would just be the exact same thing, except she's in, at Georgetown and he is a museum tour guide. It, you have these nice little bookends where the characters are just hopelessly doomed to repeat their own bad decisions and flaws. Mm-hmm. Conventional storytelling would have have you believe that, you know, every character has to have an arc. We have to go on this journey with them and it has to, you know, we all learn something together as an audience and as a character. And so for that to be totally subverted in this movie and work as well as it does is really impressive. I agree. The lack of an arc can be as compelling as an arc. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, it's like, it's like when you take a, a convention and you totally understand it, then you're able to break it. And that that becomes a plot element in and of itself. Yeah, I don't think Ruth Ruth ever grew in Citizen Ruth. I think she was the same person at the beginning of that movie as she was at the end of the movie. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that Ruth even made it through that movie alive. I kept thinking <laughs> we were just going to find her dead. Did you guys see the cameo at the end when we see what he's up to, the sexual offender? And he's like putting price tags on cans. The cans are of patio sealant, which is what uh, Ruth was huffing. Oh, shit. And he's wearing wearing the vest that that the the, The, the man wore. Like he worked in a department store. Yeah, I thought that was The hardware store vest. The hardware (laughs) store vest, yeah. That's funny. Nice. Good catch on that uh, You were talking about Tammy. Yeah, I found Tammy's character to be so interesting. And I mean, I loved her speech, her presidential speech i thought that was <laughs> so <laughs> funny and i'm like i want more of her so i was a little disappointed i mean chris klein i mean he is the comedic backbone for the rest of the movie so i guess that's fair but yeah i want more tammy you care about her and she's very genuine in her um cynicism as a high schooler and she's more in line with the cynicism of the rest of the high school like their speeches were successful in the inverse order her speech should have been the freaking worst. Uh, his speech was bleh. Her speech was fantastic. And the audience received them in the reverse order. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. she knew she knew the audience. And Tracy 100% didn't know the audience. Um, one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorite lines is, and it, and it really um, shows the kind of beautiful ignorance of Chris Klein's character. He's, he goes, life is so weird. First, Lisa has a big fight with my sister. And next, she's my girlfriend. <laughs> and, and talking about an unreliable narrative, like he genuinely has not connected any of those dots and the whole world can see them but him, you know. He's really nice, but I, I find him despicable in that way. I, I think all of the main characters are despicable in their own way. And the fact that he is sleeping with his little sister's best friend and doesn't see anything wrong with that 
is so bad. That um, doesn't even register with him. He's not conflicted about that. No, no idea. Know? I can't get over how good of a job he does. Chris Klein freaking kills. I mean, like, I is he actually like in a lot of stuff? Is American Pie? Like, is I just what know I him from, from. Amer- American yeah, Pie same. franchise, but and I think he did okay. stuff after that. But when he's narrating and he's like, "My leg wasn't bugging me too much, and the weather was nice. So every day after school, we'd go to Lisa's house to fuck and have a hot tub." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> did you guys see his slogan on his campaign posters? It no, was where did land? Paul Metzler. You Betzler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about that is we hear him in the car trying stuff out. He's workshopping. He's like, yeah. 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 Uh, Paul, uh, Ball, Maul. Like, I, I don't remember what it was, but he's just coming up with like the stupidest shit as he's just throwing ideas at the wall. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I like that. I like that Tracy was the only one who genuinely wanted to be president. You know, he was doing it just kind of under the influence of this teacher who's telling him he should. That's true. His sister was doing it to get revenge at him. Like like Tracy, who can see all of that, knows that she's the only one who should be president. One of my favorite jokes, and it's a throwaway joke. I didn't even notice it the first two times I watched this, is there are two ballads, neck and neck, jumping to the end of the movie. One vote off of one another, 250 and 251 or something like that. And then they said, and then there's the non-qualifying ballads of about 290, most of which are voting for Tammy. <laughs> she would have won. Oh, like, you're like Tam- right. Tammy had she more votes than anybody. <laughs> she won by a landslide, but she didn't qualify. <laughs> I thought that was pretty great. And they don't, they don't hit the nail on the head with that one. They just kind of put it out there, you know. I love the scene where he is having sex with Matthew Broderick's character is having sex with his wife. And then the heads of all the other characters start <laughs> drifting over. And then he finally gets off imagining hate fucking the Reese Witherspoon character. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'll tell you what, any other director would have done that with the woman facing him and you do some sort of a replacement or maybe you cut to that person under, like you swapped out the actor and put them in there. But even though she's facing down, they're like in a doggy style position. It's a it's a perfectly oval, you know, portrait of them coming over it. He did not try to make it be like, suddenly I'm fucking Reese Witherspoon. It's like it was this very weird stylized choice that I thought was was very funny. <laughs> the disembodied heads drifting yeah, the disembodied in from head, the side yeah. of the frame. Like that's a scene where it's like this guy has serious problems. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Uh, I loved when when Tracy, uh, when she finds out that Paul is running, she comes up to him and she goes, who put you up to this? Who put you up to this? Like, like as if it was one word. And his response is oh um oh no Mr. Callister uh, he just thought it would be a good idea and that there's all different kinds of fruit <laughs> like that was kind of <laughs> his explanation of, of why he's doing it yeah they call back the fruit thing a couple times a couple um, times yeah the, she the, she refers to apples and oranges like it's not the same it's apples and oranges and then when he comes home there's a bowl and he an grabs apple. a banana yeah. yeah and he grabs a banana <laughs> there's a scene where Matthew Broderick is driving the Linda Novotny character home and then he comes home and sees his wife in the kitchen and he grabs an apple out of the fridge talking oh, to his wife that's right that's right that's good how about uh, the bad 90s VHS porn oh, <laughs> the false bottom uh, false bottom drawer chest uh, <laughs> the days the days before internet <laughs> The high school football kid is like 45 years old. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple like great little 90s artifacts in this movie. The uh, the Paul Klein character is reading the Celestine prophecy okay. in one scene. I thought there was uh, a lot of good jokes in the editing of this. 
that aren't the obvious editing jokes. Like the obvious editing joke is when someone says, never in a million years will I do this. Cut to them doing right, and it. And they cut that's to kind a of, shot of them doing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's kind of like an obvious joke. But one of the ones I really loved when the, the pedophile teacher gets fired and it cuts to him at home and his wife goes, your fucking novel? Are you kidding me? And we had previously heard him explain how like she believes in me and believes I can write a novel. I love the idea of the event of his wife finding out about his affair. He goes there in his rambling explanation to her. There's actually a lot of really interesting editing choices. Like the beginning has a montage that's very Wes Anderson-y with the jogging and the track and she's setting up her, is it the nomination thing? And there's like these overhead inserts shots with the clipboards and the taping the string around the pen. Uh, She had three Um, different um, notebooks laid out with the exact same mm -hmm. thing on them. They weren't different things to sign up. It was three different notebooks anticipating um, a possible bottleneck of signatures. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We need three lanes. We don't want anyone to stand in line too long. Well, one of the questions I had for you guys is, what do you think the real motivation was behind him throwing away those two votes? He's resentful of Tracy for his friend getting fired. I think, you know, he is kind of a born loser. Like, this is a character that, you know, and I say loser in the sense that he makes a lot of self-defeating decisions in his life that are the direct cause of his current state. Mm-hmm. And this is like a character that William H. Macy would have been right at home in in the same era. But uh, you know, on a side note, Broderick is amazing in this. Mm-hmm. And he has this very soft-spoken, kind of timid nature that I thought lended itself really well to this character. But so you have that aspect where he's a loser and he sees that success and he's resentful of that, uh, which was Lincoln was kind of getting at that. But, the quote uh, was in the narration, it says, who knew how high she would climb in life? How many people would suffer because of her, I had to stop her now. <laughs> and that I, that thing, Great how many line. people would suffer because of her? It's like the only people suffering because of her are people like you who can't handle her success. I don't think all the people right. in this high school are suffering due to Tracy. He's suffering because, you know, she's the opposite of him. But I don't know what motivations there are besides that. In his narration, he also says, I wanted her to admit that she lied and cheated her way into winning this election. But I mean, did she do any of those things really? Only, like we know that she tore down the posters. Right. That's only. But I didn't get a. That's her transgression. Yeah. But I didn't get a sense that that really had an impact on the outcome. No, it did in the sense that uh, Tammy got expelled because of it, right? I think he thinks she got away scot free for a transgression. Uh, on top of all of it, I also think it was just because he simply did not want to picture a world where he would have to work side by side with her for like the whole next year you saw a taste of that afterwards when he was by himself at the restaurant and even that little taste of having to deal with with, was it paul 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 yeah yeah Yeah, well i think he was burned out yeah yeah he he gets no he tells himself that this is his joy he loves training children he's become teacher of the year but what we witness is somebody who has very little to live for. And I think that part of the affair is him just like wanting more than what he has. I think he makes mm-hmm. decisions right. in this film and doesn't get away with a single one of them. He doesn't get away with his election stuff. He doesn't even get away with throwing some food on the ground. And one could argue that his downfall was due to that Chinese food. You know what I she mean? She gets away with everything. Yeah. 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 
And that's kind of why this movie feels very misanthropic to me. And I love this movie. I think it's a fantastic movie. But I have to say, I feel like the, the overall message is pretty negative. Because it's basically everybody's a terrible person in their own way. And some people are winners and work for U.S. senators and drive around in limos. And some people are losers and are over 40 and divorced and work minimum wage jobs and live in basement apartments. Right. But they're all terrible people. But they're all terrible people in the end. <laughs> I, I, I have to disagree with you guys about Chris Klein being a terrible person. He's not smart. He has a low IQ. But I think his heart's in the right place. When they're all praying at that beautiful end of Act One, Paul is praying for his sister. And like, like, like he's the only one that like, he gives a shit about Tammy, you know? So I've refused to despise him. His, I like, like that his, they didn't go with the jock stereotype. Yeah, yeah, that true. was. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, he is fucking his little sister's girlfriend. Right, like so. his his sin <laughs> is ignorance or, or ignorance. Being yeah, considerate. Yeah. Do you find him less despicable because he's nice than the other characters? Because I think the other characters would argue that their hearts are in the right place too. If Matthew Broderick sees the Tracy Flick character as very Machiavellian, and you know, he doesn't want to see her inflict damage, even though. As a viewer, we know that's not really the probability. Lenny in Of Mice and Men uh, is a good guy because he has no meanness in him. Uh, He breaks a woman's neck in that book, I think. But there's no meanness in him. And so Mm -hmm. the only character in this movie that I could say doesn't have meanness in them is him. So as far as that goes, he's a good guy. He's oblivious, and that's that's not to his credit. I'm inclined to want to put them all all four of the main characters on equal ground, kind of in the way that Citizen Ruth has the two sides more or less as, as equals in order to make the movie conceptually work. Not to go back to Citizen Ruth, but Lincoln, you brought that up before where, you know, if, if one side was good and the other bad, then a lot of the power of that movie is lost, in my opinion. Agreed. And same here, I think, I feel like they, they all kind of have to be equally unlikable. But I, I do see what you're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, that he is... He is a genuinely nice person, even though the extent to which he is naive is causing great pain to his sister. Yes, yes, exactly. The world is crazy. He's not making a moral point the way that War Games has a moral point to make. A couple couple little details I thought was really cool is when Tracy tears down all the posters and she gets in her car, trying to figure out what it was about her driving that was so interesting. And what I realized is, the low noir light with the back plate. Uh, it's a rear projection. Yep. Old school rear projection driving and the orchestral music and it's nighttime and she's driving. It's that shot from Psycho. Mm-hmm. Oh, from Psycho. Yeah, it's totally somebody out to get away with a crime. And, and her crime <laughs> yeah. is disposing of the evidence of these torn down posters. And shortly after, when he is getting ready to have his affair and life is fucking good, it shows him in his sunglasses and it felt like um like an Italian like an Italian movie, you know, of him driving along. Right, the he's basically James Bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I thought that those were both uh, really nice little um, nods to different filmmaking styles, you know. Um, things that bothered me, um, the two wives, the character of Linda Novotny and Diane McAllister was her name, Matthew Broderick's character's wife. They really had no redeeming qualities. They weren't very fleshed out characters. Yeah, there was I don't think he was very interested in them. They were kind of serving purposes. There was another part of this movie that I felt was kind of misogynistic. The description yeah, anyway. of Tracy's private parts. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
talk about things that don't age well. I don't feel, I don't feel, I remember I've never felt comfortable with that moment. It just made me feel really gross. Yeah. I think it was just this adult describing that just, just felt, felt gross. And that's, that's still yeah, about a teenager. things I don't like. Yeah. It's meant to be very jarring and it does succeed yeah. in that the smash cut, but yeah, it's a little, a little too far. My last, my last little brilliant detail I wanted to bring up is how Tracy talks about Coke and Coke's number one and they've been number one and yet still they, they do all this advertising, whatever. And, uh, and mm-hmm. then we see Matthew Broderick drinking a Pepsi and he looks at it and he goes, Paul, Paul, <laughs> he, he looks at the Pepsi that he's drinking while he's watching porn in his basement. Right. Which yeah. is a football player. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Which is a football player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about that. That's very good. <laughs> Did you guys have any embarrassing, uh, high school stories? Do you, Lincoln? It's funny. I couldn't think of a single good high school story, but but I was a bit of a Matthew Broderick in middle school. And I went to a school dance where I was going to become a legend. And the way I was going to do that is I, I wore baggy jeans at the time. It was like 1997. I wore these real baggy jeans. And one night in a burst of inspiration, Jinko jeans. I, I stayed, yeah, Jinko jeans. I stayed up like all night pulling or working on a prank. And what the prank was, was I got a big like 32 ounce bottle of Dawn dish soap with a little pop top cap and I put it upside down and strapped it to my leg with a hollowed out pen um, next to it so that I could run a wire through the hollowed out pen and around the cap. Now the plan was the wire pokes through my pocket and I go into the dance and I wait for things to really get going. And then I stand in the middle of a gr- in the middle of a crowd and I reach into my pocket and I pop it and I let 32 ounces of soap just go all across the dance floor and it'll become this crazy slip and slide with bubbles and teachers trying to get the kids under control. And the few, few people that knew that it was me that did this, I would just be a legend. I stand there in the middle, I'm ready to go and I pop it and I lift up my pant leg and I'm kind of looking around and I'm waiting for it to drain and waiting for it to drain. And I start to feel this wetness on my, my leg. And I look down and my Jinkos kind of had a little lip to them and, uh, and it was catching and it was just filling up my jeans with this soap. And I look and I, I step out of the way and there's some on the ground, a lot of it in my jeans. It's still draining. There's no system for me to stop it again. So I quickly make my exit and I'm just trailing a line of soap all the way out. And I get into the hallway and I'm walking down the hallway with soap and I see a teacher walk by and I'm like, oh God, oh God. And uh, I had to stay like for three hours afterwards mopping the school dance floor. It didn't create bubbles. It there was no slip and slide. It was a botched mission, but, and I wasn't, and I'm not a legend. People in, in middle school don't, don't remember that. So that's my, that's, that's, that's my, that's my story. I love that the ex, I love that the excess of denim was your downfall. Agreed. Excess of denim. Totally. <laughs> I, I thought like, I remember my high school being like full of shenanigans and that I did all this crazy stuff. And I was really trying to think of something even worth sharing. And I, I, couldn't get anything. I couldn't. I, mean, I, I couldn't never either. got like pantsed or swirlied or what are you talking about, man? You just told like the most <laughs> hilarious story. Yeah, no, right. I was 12. I was 12 then by high school. The, the spark in me had died. I was already a, a boring uh, soul who was trying to look cool in front of girls. Burnt out shell of a man. Just a burnt out shell of a man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I was at my most Ferris Bueller when I was like in middle school. But yeah, not after that. 
I went to high school really only knowing like maybe three, four people. And I had met up with a friend of mine in the morning. And then I think after like first or second period, there was like a break. And I saw somebody in the distance that I remembered. I'm like, oh, there's my buddy because it seemed like they were wearing like the same thing or like, you know, same backpack or something. And I came over and I threw my arm around him. And then I realized that it was some like junior or senior with like a bunch of upperclassmen and just that like heart sink and just like <laughs> there's no solace in that moment you're just like oh my gosh full-on embarrassment that's all i can think about for that whole week and i'm also the kind of person who just doesn't really let things go very easily and it kind of pushed me <laughs> over the edge it was it blake has a, a list of people to kill like steve buscemi yep, and billy madison yep, and yeah he's just waiting <laughs> he, for that phone he's call putting on his lipstick yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't let the cheery demeanor fool you oh man <laughs> Yeah, I mean, high school kids are just so wrapped up in their own stuff, mm -hmm. and everything is so new and adventurous. Matthew Broderick's character in War Games um, fully embraced the newness and the adventurousness of the computer age. He was what every <laughs> high school kid wanted to be. Just like in Ferris Bueller, I want to be this kid. And if I'm locked in a room, I want to hack my way out of the room, and I want to outsmart the adults. Mm -hmm. I had thrown out the idea of election and Ferris Bueller, because they complement each other better than these two, but uh, Ferris Bueller is really played, and I had never seen War Games. So I was really excited that you guys chose War Games. Um, tell me about that, because I had put yeah, out the idea of Election and Ferris Bueller, then I heard back that you were going to do War Games. What was the logic there? I mean, Ferris Bueller is definitely his most iconic movie, and it makes sense because he's the king of high school in Ferris Bueller, and then he is like the ultimate loser of high school. Um, I thought War Games would be great because it's his first real leading role. And this election is kind of his last leading role. It's the end of like what I think of as prime Broderick. Mm -hmm. um, it's post, it's even post Godzilla. So I think after we get into like the, the 2000s, and it's a very different Broderick that we're seeing in movies. I think you had also mentioned but, the way the character ages, right? In uh, Ferris Bueller, like that, that he is something of this detestable character now when you watch the movie. Yeah. I mean, if you watch Ferris Bueller, it's really fun, but that character I feel like would not be really fun to hang out with. He steps on everybody to get what he wants without any regard to anybody else. I mean, he comes off like a total sociopath. Yeah. He's very narcissistic for sure. The reason that the audience loves him is we're not saying when we're watching Ferris Bueller, we're not saying, gosh, I wish I had a friend like that. No, you want to be him. I want to be that guy. You don't fucking want to yeah. be that friend. He makes his friends' lives a nightmare. Exactly. Yeah, no exactly. one wants yeah. to be Cameron. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he drags his poor sick friend out of bed so he <laughs> doesn't have to be alone on the day he elects to skip school. <laughs> Worth it. I think one of the things that for me makes that movie not as rewatchable is just how fantastic some of that stuff is. It's way too much. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like that kind of takes me out of the story. It's like this, this is just so improbable and impossible, but I might be alone in that. I've seen it a bunch, but I've never seen, I had, not, had you guys all seen war games? When I was a kid, my parents would buy blank VHS tapes and tape the movies on cable, oh, yeah. but they only had oh, like yeah. five or six tapes. So after they watched the movie, they would tape over it with another movie. 
And so they would take the labels and peel them off. And at a certain point, it just became a masking tape label with a sh- written on with a Sharpie. And so this is like one of my masking tape movies <laughs> that we just had laying around. Nice. As a kid, you don't realize the serious Cold War implications. Like this is a serious Cold War movie. Like yeah. they really went full strange love mm-hmm. on this one. Well, yeah, I mean, Dr. Falcon, like that character is dark. And he just is ready to watch the world burn. I disagree with that. I think he wants to believe that because he's broken man because mm-hmm. he lost his son. But I don't think he believed any of that stuff that he said. That's fair. We're like diving way into the end. Yeah, but. I know. <laughs> yeah, because upon reflection, he showed up with the helicopter and he raced to the thing because he was trying to save it. I think on an intellectual level, here's the logic I've been telling myself to this kid. And then he gets to sit and stew on it and realize that's not his worldview. He realized he was full of shit. Yeah. The stuff he says is very dark. And I mean, this movie deals with the subject of the end of humanity. You know, we're all millennials. The Cold War didn't really hit our generation. And this movie came out in the early 80s. This is like, I feel like we're kind of past the Cold War at this point in terms of popular culture. Like we're really into Vietnam territory here. When I think about like the Cold War the iconic Cold War movies, I think about more stuff from the 60s, like Dr. Strangelove, The Manchurian Candidate, all the Bond movies. Hmm. And then like Hitchcock, you have Torn Curtain and Topaz. I, th- um, I mean, I feel like you have to throw Red Dawn in there, which is 80s. Of course. I mean, there's still movies that are made every year about the Cold War. I just I'm saying like as a, you know, the cultural zeitgeist, I feel like hmm. we more moved into Vietnam with like the Deer Hunter Apocalypse Now in the late 70s. And then we're getting into like platoon in the mid eighties and born on the 4th of July. Um, one of the um, things I, Oh, sorry, go on. Jumping no, no, no. Right into was, the stuff I'm excited about. Yeah. Let's, let's actually talk about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think in both, both this movie and war game or war games and Ferris Bueller, he's the kind of teenager that you wish that you were like, he, he's the kind of cool that you want to be in, in high school where all the kids are cool by, by under like by, by not being impressed by anything, by being real cynical He's not that. He loves life too much. And, and uh, I admire him for that in both of these movies. Definitely. And I like that they didn't hit the nerd thing too hard, yeah. where they didn't make him too socially awkward and, and really fall into that stereotype. At one point in the movie, he goes to see his two tech colleagues. And one of them is kind of a, an awkward engineer guy. And the other one is like full on Poindexter Autistic. stereotype nerd. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where he's on the spectrum. But, yeah, I had um, that as something that didn't really work just because that was just such an extreme a stereotype of the computer nerd. Mm. Right. Yeah, like yeah. they may have taken that guy a little too far, but mm-hmm. I, I really like that the Broderick character is portrayed as a normal person. I find him to be very bland. Matthew Broderick in general, I don't know what it is about this movie, but I just found him to be not great. I, I, I didn't see the quality. Gloves are coming off, Blake. Yep, sorry, sorry. <laughs> were you not a fan of the movie or were you not a fan of Broderick's character in the movie or both? Again, I just I, I don't connect with Broderick at all. I think that everything is just so like plain and the same. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of growth there. I felt like I saw a large portion of who he was as uh, like in in war games in his first big role and then seeing him in election. I just didn't see a lot of like, I don't know. Are I think, you guys big Broderick fans? or? Well, I think with the exception of Ferris Bueller, I've always seen him as this like middle-aged nebbish man. And even <laughs> when he's like, when like the computer is reacting, he's like, oi, 
like when he's a kid and still kind of playing that character, it feels maybe a little off. And then he he aged to the point where he actually was a middle-aged man and like there he plateaued. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of true. I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. I'm kind of Broderick neutral. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I, I don't know about his, his arc, but seeing this movie and seeing Ferris Bueller, I was the target demographic for both of these movies. I want to be him and I want her to be my girlfriend. And, uh, oh, and Ali I, loved, e- I loved everything about his energy and I loved everything about her energy and I loved their chemistry. And I don't even think, did they even have a romantic connection or were they just, just really well, enjoyed it was being around kiss. each other? It was headed in that direction for sure. Cause yeah. you have the scene where they're in his bedroom and he's trying to walk past her and she pins him. Yeah. And I really love that moment because it's definitely a very sexually charged moment. He's in between her legs and she wants to keep him there, but it's all very innocent and, and naive. But, but that's also the dream of a high school kid. I want a girl to pin me, but they do. They do finally kiss. They do finally kiss. I must've been taking a note during that part. I found the last 30 minutes of this movie to be really dumb. <laughs> the introduction Blake hated this of, movie. I did not yeah, like, did so not like it. Basically when <laughs> like I really dug the movie until we got to Falcon. I felt like them being on like the organ. I think they were in Salem. That whole part of the movie felt really off. And then like the climactic final moment no, where they're playing. he was on the he was on an island off the coast. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, okay. They went into Salem, I think. I think they flew into Salem. I don't know. I remember him in the phone booth saying, like, oh, get me a plane ticket to Salem. I don't know. Some of the logistics of travel in this movie were fairly problematic. Yeah, I kind of didn't even realize list, yeah. like where Yeah, I know. It felt like it was uh I, I like he, was wondering he escapes he escapes from NORAD. And uh-huh. makes a free phone call, and then all of a sudden he's like getting off a plane in Salem with her. Yeah, I also <laughs> yeah, get that anyway. he's so smart, she drove but then he just turned into like MacGyver and then just started to like dismembering uh-huh. the phone and then got a free phone call. I don't know. I love that I mean, stuff. I remember this movie having a much more lighthearted feel, and that he was kind of like a, Mag- a young MacGyver type character, and I had totally missed out on the whole cold war thing and all of the very dark and serious implications of that. When I saw it, I just remember like how cool it was that he like hacked the keypad in the infirmary (laughs) to get out. And Mm -hmm. I found the ending very intense. There's a lot of things I enjoyed about it, but the thing that kept me, the thing that kept having me say, this is really dumb was the overriding fact that Matthew Broderick almost started the end of the world. That, that, that like it was Matthew Broderick's choices. He didn't get wrapped up in this. It was things that he did that started all of this. So at the end, when they like are all celebrating because the world isn't over, I'm like, I don't care if you're 17. You're going to spend the rest of your life in prison, you little shit. You almost fucking ended mankind. <laughs> Amen. It is Amen. true. They're not yeah. going to forget that. They're not going to be like, hey, yeah. you helped save the day with your tic-tac-toe thing. Tic-tac-toe. Like, no, dude, you, you started. <laughs> you, 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 saved, you, you, you finished all of this, but you started it too, you know. Yeah, I, I totally I agree. agree. I thought that was that was a stretch that he was able to accomplish that basically by dialing one phone number and typing the word Joshua. He was able to <laughs> infiltrate the highest levels of national security that mm-hmm. even in a time when computer security was not a thing. That was a little bit of a stretch. But I will say that the character of McKittrick, that guy should be in jail. That guy is criminally negligent yeah. in his job. Yeah. Like if anything, he's the one to blame. 
He's the scientist that was pushing for AI. Yes. Played, played brilliantly by Dabney Coleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie starts with a cold open, which is a very intense scene oh, of so uh, a, a very young Michael Madsen. Yeah. And another character, uh, I can't that remember his name. Madsen? The guy was the guy. West Wing. Yeah, that was Michael Madsen, one of his first roles. And the other guy was uh, the West yep. Wing, the, really the head of the that. cabinet in the West Wing. Yeah, and they're two missile commanders who are put through a drill. They're, they're supposed to launch a nuclear ICBM, and they're not willing to do it, which sets off the whole premise of the movie, which is that you know we need to put machines in charge of launching these missiles. Yeah. I, I love the premise. Oh, that's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. Uh, nuclear war needs to be decided up at the top. And then there's a million things that need to happen for it to take place. And it fails right here because of one guy and his inability to turn a key. It wasn't both of them. It was one guy. I love that moment when Michael Madsen's pointing his gun saying, you know, get your hand back on that key. Turn your key, sir. Yeah, exactly. And they've, they've done this test with all of their people who are handling it. And they had a 20% failure rate, which is unacceptable. We can't have a one in fifth chance that if we have to go into nuclear war, that it will fail due to one man. Let's us. let's uh, build a computer and put a goofy smile on its face and name it after a hamburger. And that can make <laughs> all the decisions. <laughs> Think about how ridiculous the plot of this movie is as a whole, like or, or, or just how elaborate it is. If someone asks you, what is this movie about? Which which did happen because I told people that I watched it recently. It's it's a difficult movie to sum up short in a short period of time because it's about a war that's not actually happening. I just can't imagine this movie getting made now because it's just so such a strange movie to market. I just found it completely unbelievable that an entire control room worth of like top level military officials. I just like how is there not one person that realizes like nothing's actually happening? I don't know. That's again. Yeah, our it's our a movie, Air Force but... does not see our Air Force does not see these missiles in the air that our computers are telling <laughs> us are there. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm they, like, what? They, like, the moment of impact be before they were like, no, it wasn't real. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. Ugh. There's also there is a moment where they say that the uh, missiles cannot launch unless they're in DEFCON one. Just they were at DEFCON Def- one. Yeah, I know. Just move it to DEFCON two. Oh like, yeah! That stop it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Damn it, Xander! I did not get a warning before this movie that I was potentially going to have a seizure at, in the last oh, ten minutes. That's Dude. one of the things I was going to mention too. That was so intense. It was intense, but also like went on Wait, for like, maybe you, five minutes. It, <laughs> do you it was have ridiculous. a ridiculous? Yeah. Are, are you actually at risk for seizure? No, but I'm just I'm being overly dramatic. This wouldn't pass the Harding. This wouldn't pass the Harding test. Yeah. Yeah, 100% not. In all of these movies where where there are a bunch of government officials and some of them are being real idiots in their opinions and other people are being real rational, usually it's like the scientist is being rational and it's the general that's being like, oh, let's go to war, let's do this and that. The general is never a good guy. And this general was a wise person. We respected this general. And the other guy who wanted wow. to install AI was a buffoon. No, I mean, the general was the one who was like, this this machine learning can't happen. He, Did you see yeah, the general it, as a that, good guy, Christian? I, I agree with you that it was flipped in that regard. But one of the problems I had was that the general was a little too much of a fat cowboy. And they yeah. were hitting that mm-hmm. stereotype yeah. a little too hard. But yeah, he was, he was the rational one. And the mm-hmm. scientist, well, the scientist played by Falcon is, is very flighty. 
and like he's got his head in some you know bigger picture and and the mere mortals that he's interacting with just are so far beneath him Mm -hmm. but the character of mckittrick i also thought was a little too much of a too incompetent and i I feel like that's an older kind of dated cinematic device of the heavy 1980s were all about like the police chief who is going against all logical advice and like you know your hero like um like die hard you know right even to his own disadvantage yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. No Just end. a complete buffoon. I, I feel like characters now are a bit more fleshed out. And when I see that in a modern movie where the person is just making idiotic decisions, it feels dated. Christian, what you're saying is that you didn't enjoy the general's uh, pissed on a spark plug line. You didn't like that. <laughs> everything that guy said was hilarious. Yeah. He, at one point, he said, I don't know if I want to trust the safety of this country to a silicone diode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then like at the end where Matthew Broderick 100% should be arrested after all of this, he's like, oh man, we did it. And then he starts to give him a noogie. I cringed. (laughs) It was so bad. I did not like that at all. (laughs) Oh, you little rascal, you. (laughs) You almost destroyed the world. (laughs) Did you guys notice that towards the beginning, Matthew Broderick brings up the video of a very young Falcon with his son and Mm -hmm. Jennifer has this one line that I'm like, what, why? Uh, She says, wow, that's him. He's amazing looking. He's like a a tall white dude playing with his son in the control room. I'm so confused. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Amazing she, looking. Yeah. Every single thing yeah. that that he she, shows I mean, she her, wanted she's to fuck him off the bat. Just so supportive. She's just like so <laughs> excited to. I mean, the game doesn't look like any fun at all. And she, no. and he's like, should we hit him with the submarines? And she's like, yeah, hit them. Hey, when I liked a girl yeah, that, in high school, she could have told me anything, and I'd be like, that's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's like it's like she's she's just trying to be agreeable with him. Uh, yeah, the, the game itself awkward. did not look fun at all. It felt a little bit like mm-hmm. Oregon Trail. Like, what should I do now? <laughs> here's, the, here's the weirdest moment in this whole movie for me. The buttering of the corn. Yes. So I, oh. I know that trick. And I'm really proud of that trick. <laughs> it's like the director was excited to share that with people. Are you making a point here? Or is it just like, hey, let's show them how to butter corn with bread. Yeah, he slathers yeah. a piece of white bread <laughs> with butter and then rubs the corn with it. I, I've never seen that before. Corn. You haven't seen it? See... I, I show that to everybody. If I'm eating corn at a picnic, I'll be like, hey, check this out. <laughs> well, that and why is felt the like corn... an inside joke to me. Like there the... was something behind the scenes maybe that was yeah. that was calling back to. And the corn's raw. No idea. I, yeah, I like, saw that as more like a dig on health food. Like if you watch movies mm. from the late 80s, early 90s, it's always yeah. kind of like health food is gross. And that, uh, was, yeah. that was a play on that. Yeah. I feel like they could have tightened this movie by about two minutes. Just got rid of this. <laughs> Just cut, cut the corn scene. John, we don't need it. No, no, hear me out. So Matthew Broderick's character, brilliant hacker. His parents brilliantly hacked the corn. We so see now we know he where he got it from. from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yep, yep. yep. I, Novel yep. solutions. No. I also love like any movie with any sort of supercomputer. I love how there's always just plenty of data analysts going around with a clipboard looking at all of these like intricate lights and buttons thinking that they're actually checking something be like there's literally zero information on this machine it's all very high tech but when joshua was trying to hack the nuclear missile codes 
They said, can we invade the deep logic? And the guy says, we keep hitting a firewall. <laughs> Which also, I, I love the character of the guy who worked in the computer room, whose only job, it seems like, was to be really neurotic and run around. <laughs> yeah, he lives life on DEFCON 1 at all times. The movie plays on these two societal fears. The first is uh, obviously the nuclear war, but then the other is sentient AI and technology. And I love that the computer in this movie is such a complete asshole. It never does anything you ask it to. It always is like, no, let's do this. Like in the beginning, <laughs> he's like, let's play global thermonuclear war. And the computer goes, how about a game of chess? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he says it again and it goes, fine. <laughs> like, why would you design a computer to be such a dick? Yeah. yeah, that doesn't really line up with, like, the intelligence of a learning system. Like, that's just a mischievous computer. Like, that, that's yeah. not yeah. following the logic. But what did follow the logic was that we establish that the computer plays games and learns from its mistakes, and that's its whole quality. And it's been running. The whole world is about to go up in flames, and we're witnessing 10,000 uh, tic-tac-toe games playing a second and the computer's trying to learn and trying to learn and trying to learn and we're trying to get that computer to the learning arc where it's going to not bomb Russia. That worked for me. I thought that that was very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the hero of the movie is machine learning. Yeah. And the moral and the yeah. moral was earned. I thought the moral of like, uh, war is futile, which is such a, like an on-the-nose moral they earned it. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. Through the computer, but they earned it through the computer game and they earned it through tic-tac-toe. So I thought that that worked. The way they executed it was effective. Well, I, there were a lot of things that I thought actually worked really well and aged well with this movie. For one thing, the giant room filled with computers and the entire wall is different screens. I don't know if we'd seen that in a movie before this one. In the control but, room, you mean? Yeah, the control room idea. And I don't know if NORAD actually has that. I, I assume that they probably don't in reality, but it, it's a great like cinematic thing that has aged well. You see it in Apollo 13 with the mm -hmm. NASA room. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great idea that holds up well. I think it's necessary, whether it's realistic or not. For film language, it, it, it works. One, <laughs> one thing that bothers me about this movie that's like a little detail is that the public tours of NORAD, well, it's like, weird. do you get public tours at the CIA? Mm -hmm. Seemed a little, yeah. little unbelievable. Weren't, but weren't they doing the tours when they were still not in DefCon Five? Like they were talking about it's DefCon yeah. Four right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah which <laughs> is unreal. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're not at 100% secure and you're doing tours? I think that's insane. <laughs> right, and also if you were to do that, what percentage of those people would not be Russian spies? Yeah. yeah, so true. Yeah. I mean, how much of a background test did you do on just this random group of people taking this tour? Yeah. I'm from Cincinnati. I wonder I wonder if the whole tour what came from how do we get Matthew Broderick out of this facility? Oh yeah, it, it was lazy writing for sure. He's escaped the room. How do we get him out? What if he could exit with a group of people? Well, why would there be a group of people? They didn't want to have him crawl through a sewer pipe uh Shawshank style. <laughs> Shawshank style. Coming out in a river of shit. Yeah, it didn't fit his character. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this movie is directed by John Badham, who I, I guess I'm kind of embarrassed to admit he has kind of stayed off my radar, but he's done so many movies that I, every one of us has seen, and I just never realized. And we mentioned this at the top of the episode, but 
he did Saturday Night Fever. And just to name a few of them, he also did Blue Thunder, which is a, a helicopter action movie with Roy Scheider and Warren Oates. Uh, War Games, obviously, but he also did Short Circuit, which has Ali Sheedy and, and the Goots, Steve Gutenberg. He did Stakeout, Bird on a Wire, Point of No Return, which is the Bridget Fonda remake of La Femme Nikita. Um, he did another Stakeout, Drop Zone with Wesley Snipes, which was the, the kind of um, knockoff of Terminal Velocity, is the parachuting movie from the mid-90s. And he did uh, Nick of Time which was the Johnny Depp thriller with Christopher Walken from the mid nineties. Hmm. It's like a hell oh of a gosh. filmography from my childhood. It's a crazy okay, filmography. I'm it's looking up Nick of time and I'm now it's yeah, I'm, I'm getting some, some memory back on some of these movies. Yeah. He's been yep. around. I, I love um, the list of um, there's two great lists in this movie. The first is the, the high school computer password, which is a hilarious. Yeah. What, what we would call a weak password in today's <laughs> yeah. cybersecurity terms. But I wrote these down because it was so funny. It was handle, effort, spelled all in caps, points, double, and the current one is pencil. Pencil. <laughs> um, and the, the second great list was just the list of games, which was like blackjack, poker, checkers, mm-hmm. Biotoxic chemical warfare, uh, <laughs> global global thermonuclear war. You know, just your standard games. One thing that annoyed me about war games was just the over the topness of the military uniforms. I don't know mm. if that was realistic or not, but those little cravats and that one guy had a beret seemed a little much. You had put in, you put one of like most eighties things about the movie. Oh, yeah, there's some great 80s gems in this movie. They're sitting there playing the game and drinking Tab, which is great. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty yeah. good. <laughs> uh, Ali Sheedy's workout gear, oh, when she's, she's like uh, in a leotard and tights or leggings and leg warmers, and she's stretching in her room. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I think we're the last generation to have the experience of having a first computer, like in mm, the house, yeah. not just mm-hmm. like my first computer. My, my first computer was a Mac 2, and it didn't have any way of connecting to the internet. I think it was a couple more computers down the line. And then we got CompuServe, which was like before AOL. If you guys, I don't know, you guys might even be a little young for that. But uh, I, was, I was post dial-up, but I remember my first computer being a gateway computer, which I don't think they're even around anymore. Isn't there a movie where somebody extends their arm and like a disc shoots out like taxi driver style? Am I making this up? Right. No, I don't that think you are. Familiar. I don't remember the movie, but that was the type of shit I loved. And the one time I really tried to impress, I tried to impress a girl. This is another one of those Lincoln and middle school moments. I came to school and I said, Hey, can I talk to you? And there was a girl I really liked. And I said, I need you to do me a favor. Could you hold on to this? Could you hold on to this for me for a little while? <laughs> and I give her a floppy disk. And this was during a time where she wouldn't know what the fuck to do with this floppy disk. But I wanted her to get the impression that I might have some right like, that you were a, a secret data. agent. You were you were Bill mm-hmm. Paxton in True Lies. Something like that, where <laughs> where a teacher might come and search my locker for a, an important floppy disk, and it wouldn't be there because I've asked a girl to hold it for me. And I remember her just being like, "Okay, sure." And I wasn't sure if she was onto the intrigue like I was intending. She was just like, <laughs> right. "Okay, yeah, whatever." 
It's like, is this your saved Oregon Trail that you're going to pick up later after lunch? <laughs> Probably just had a couple Word documents on it, like some homework. Um, there, oddly, there are numerous drug references in war games, which I found kind of weird. But the funniest is when he pulls the dictaphone out of the drawer in the nurse's office, the infirmary. He pulls out the tape recorder and the voice says, patient's eyes are dilated, consistent with use of marijuana or yeah. PCP. <laughs> <laughs> or PCP. <laughs> or PCP. Like, One of those illicit this is, drugs. <laughs> this is an a infirmary at NORAD. Who's doing PCP? <laughs> We're doing these tests. That's hilarious. I, I wanted to go back to Reese Witherspoon really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. There was one thing, because I was looking at her filmography, and the character that Reese Witherspoon plays in Election kind of came to be the defining character of her career, in my opinion. Like, I always think of her as that really neurotic, type A, tightly wound person. But she has been in so many movies that, like, Mm -hmm. you don't really think of as Reese Witherspoon movies. And to name a couple, um, the early ones I mentioned, Freeway, before, Mm -hmm. which is a a gritty crime movie in the vein of Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the er early 2000s, she played the character from Legally Blonde, which is kind of like her, her big breakout i think yeah that's what i think of that's I think what the world identifies her as. like that's that's her mm-hmm. probably her most identifiable role um she did four christmases with vince vaughn fun fact i am in that movie what <laughs> what what i've only seen it just the once we may be in one of like the deleted scenes um but yeah i did, yeah we were at the we were at the airport scene and we're kind of like right on the line so yeah I'm going to go find you and post that yeah. on, our, on our show's Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, see, good idea. I am funny. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. This has been the Nakatomi Break Room. I am Christian Seal with Xander Massey, Blake Bauman, and the three of us will be washing our crotches in the tubs waiting for our illicit affairs. But <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. <laughs>